0: I invite you to turn in God's holy word to, excuse me, to Zechariah chapter 2, the second to last book in the Old Testament, and the second chapter of that book. We've been looking at texts related to Jesus as the Savior of the world. Savior of nations. We come to Zechariah 2. Zechariah and Haggai prophesied about the same time, beginning in the year 520 B.C. God's people had come back from captivity. They had begun rebuilding the temple, but it stopped because of their enemies. And then they had been restarted again, as Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them. And Zechariah is known for its eight night visions that Zechariah had. And in chapter 2, we read at the beginning here about the third of those visions, and then some oracles follow. And we're going to give our attention tonight primarily to verses 10 through 13 in the context of chapter 2. Zechariah 2 at verse 1, God's holy word. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand... So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out. And another angel was coming out to meet him who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And then these words especially, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Let's ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What a rich treasure it is to hold the God-breathed and scripturated word and to pray that he who is the word will by his spirit speak his word to our hearts through his scriptures and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe that we might say amen. Oh God, let your word be preached truthfully. pray you give mercy to preach your word tonight and that you will give to us faith to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we in some ways sit in the same place as the people of Zacharias they did, because we also feel what the people of Zacharias they felt, we feel at times quite insignificant. We feel powerless. We feel small. In fact, we, we even feel that way sometimes not just about ourselves, but about the gospel. About the gospel. We, we, if we stop to think of it, we say it's a staggering thought that the living God has come down to us in human flesh. But as we live, we often feel like it's the agenda of the world that's really the big thing. And so if we're at a grocery store and they happen to play Hark the Herald Angels Sing or O Come O Come Emmanuel, we think, wow, isn't that great? They're giving some space to Jesus. Maybe we see a movie, holiday season, and they they show a church or they mention the meaning of Christmas or something. We think, well, there it is. That's that's great. They're giving a nod to Jesus. As if as if Jesus Christ were some 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 little man who is begging for some attention. And we forget who it is that owns this world and who it is whose plan is coming to pass. We forget how great our God is. And Zacharias did it as well. They're back in the land of promise after captivity, they've been brought home. But they're under the rule of the Persians. They're being harassed by their neighbors. They're trying to rebuild their homes and lives, and it's it's not easy. They're living in a city that has no walls. And as they build the temple, some people are thinking, you know, what's the point of building a temple? We don't even have walls around our city. And in this context, Zechariah has this night vision. Man young man going off to measure Jerusalem. Maybe, he's, maybe it's early morning, he's going off to work. What are you going to do? Where are you going? You got your tape measure? Well, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. And this young man, he seems to represent kind of the old school. He's, he's thinking of Jerusalem as it has always been need to, to measure it up that there's enough space for the Jewish people. I need to measure it up to build walls around the city, as we've always done it. But then comes an angel. And he proclaims this messenger of God. that it's not going to be like it was before. You can't pour new wine into old wineskins. God is bringing a new order of reality Run, speak to this young man. Say to him, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. At this critical moment in history, God's people are to grasp that God's about to do a new thing, that he has prepared for them a future greater than they can imagine. Jerusalem's not going to be like it was before, a wall around the little Jewish people, but there's so many people you can't have walls. It's an infinitely expanding city. And you don't need walls, God, because it will be the wall of fire around her. But greatest of all, God says, my glory will dwell in her midst. And as we read on, we learn that this... The glory of the Lord will fill his universal church. And that's what we see in our text tonight, that Zechariah is making clear that this is a world kingdom, the kingdom of this coming Christ. And his glory, the glory of Emmanuel, will fill a worldwide church. Let's look tonight at that as we consider three points. First of all, Emmanuel's glorious presence. Emmanuel's glorious presence. He says in verse 10 that he's going to dwell in your midst. And then Emmanuel's worldwide people. Emmanuel's worldwide people. Verse 11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. And then finally, Emmanuel's distinct prescriptions. Emmanuel's distinct prescriptions. Three commands he gives. Well, First of all, Emmanuel's glorious presence. In in verse 5, the Lord had said, I will be the glory in her midst. And then in verse 10, he says, For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. And so the the central promise here is that the living God is going to indwell his church. His radiant presence will fill his people. And this, this answers to the great grief of God's people. Remember what happened That the, the kingdom of Israel split, right? You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians, when they were in power, carried off the northern tribes and scattered them in the world. And then more than a century later, Babylon came to power and captures Jerusalem and carries away the citizens of Judah, Jerusalem, to Babylon. And those were great griefs. They were the judgment of God upon his people. But the great grief of the captivity was not that God's people were taken out of the land, The greatest grief of the captivity was that God's presence had departed the land. You see, when when God says in verse 5, I will be the glory in her midst, God's people knew what glory was. Glory had accompanied them on their wilderness journey. You remember that fiery pillar. And glory is what came down when when they had built this tabernacle that God had ordered. And glory filled it. so the priests couldn't enter it. And then when they built the temple building, glory filled it. But God's glory can't dwell with rebels. And so in a different prophet, the prophet of Ezekiel, the prophet saw something happen. God's glory left the ark. And then he saw God's glory leave the temple. And then he saw God's glory leave the city. And it was the judgment God's glory had left. And you see, that's man's greatest trouble, isn't it? The absence of God's glory in one's life. If you, if you find the people who are hopeless, as we do in this world, many people, they think their lives don't have any, have no meaning. They, they have no significance. They, they're hopeless people. And, and at the bottom of it all is what? It's that they have not seen the glory of the Lord. They, they don't have God's presence, his radiant presence in their lives. But now God is promising he's going to come and dwell among his people. And this is to be a great encouragement to the people of Zachariah's day. Who think they're small and forgotten and insignificant. And now God says, I will come and dwell among you. And I'm the supreme being in the world. God is not meaningless. God is not frivolous. God is not trivial. He created all this. He knows its purpose. He knows how to bring it to purpose. And if he who is all meaning and all life, God who is light and life fills his church, then his church has meaning and purpose and the greatest joy there is. I will dwell in your midst. I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. That's the most wonderful promise in all the world, right? That is life. And you know, we celebrate this time of the year, the fulfillment of that, something Zachariah never saw. But the glory of God coming down to earth is is the incarnation, isn't it? The gospel of John tells the Christmas story a bit differently than Luke does, doesn't he? Because John doesn't take us back to the birth of Jesus. John takes us back to the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's our Emmanuel, isn't it, God with us, that the glory of God has come down has taken up human flesh, has revealed God to us, God with man in his radiant glory. And the ascension of Jesus up into heaven doesn't mean that we've lost that glory now, because Christ is still with his church now, by his Holy Spirit indwelling his people in his radiant glory. And so what we learn from the Christmas story, as it were, is that the glory of the church is not self-made. It's given from above. The wonder of God's promise is that God pledges that He will come to dwell among His people. And you see, that's really what sets all false religions apart, or distinguishes the true religion from, from all the false ones. It's that in every other religion, right, you you climb your way up to the glory, you, you seek the glory, you attain to the glory by doing things, by certain meditations, by doing certain works. But in the gospel, the glory comes down to you. The glory descends out of heaven. Israel could have never filled the tabernacle with glory. Israel could have never filled the temple with glory. The church of the Old Testament could never fill herself with glory. But God says, I will be glory in your midst. I will come down to you, which is what he's done in Jesus Christ. It's not that we're deserving. We are sinful and depraved and children of wrath of ourselves. But the glory comes down to make a way, doesn't he? He takes human flesh up that he might die in the place of human flesh. Zechariah says that God's sword, chapter 13, will strike the shepherd. And he'll make a way for us. To bask in the glory rather than to be consumed by it. And one day the dwelling of God's glory with man will be complete. Because you see, when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the, the word could be translated, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And there's something in the Old Testament that we take for granted oftentimes, but it's, it's a whole wilderness journey when, when, when Israel was pitching their tents, when they would camp and God would tell them to settle here for a bit, God had his tent erected in the midst of Israel's tents. He tabernacled among his people. you imagine if you decided to go camping with family at Detroit Lake or the church went camping there and, and the president of the United States said, I want to camp among you. I want my tent to be pitched among your tents, as it were. But you see, something far greater, as Israel's in the wilderness, God pitched his tent in the middle of their tents. God condescended to dwell with his people, though hidden behind a thick curtain. But in Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself, and he's torn down the curtain, and his glory radiates in the face of his people. And one day, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is. Is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And on that day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We have a secret the world knows nothing about. We have the radiance of God's glory dwelling in us his New Testament temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. And when we realize that, then we know it is a shame if we suggest to the world in any way that what they have is the main thing and what we have is the little thing. And yet we do that sometimes in our conversations. We're ashamed sometimes, aren't we? I know I have been in conversations with worldlings where we are excited about many things, sports team, business accomplishment, whatever it might be, but, but we've left out the main thing, maybe even in conversations with believers sometimes, and we, we seem almost oblivious at points to this reality that the glory of the living God in the face of Christ Jesus has tabernacled, is tabernacling, dwells among us. And if there's anything that ought to be first in our minds, if there's anything that ought to excite us, it should be this wonder, this reality. And so the world needs the glory of God, but where will the world find the glory of God? They'll find it in the church. The church. Church is at the center of it all. It is the New Testament temple where God dwells, not the building, but the people and any time we get excited about the world coming to the Lord, but we leave out the church and we miss the point, which sadly many, many have in, in modern America. If before the Reformation, too often people thought of the church as possessing salvation and dispensing salvation, after the Reformation, at least in our modern era, many people think that you can have the glory of God, you can have a relationship with Him apart from His church. But the glory of God is set in our text to dwell in the church. It's upon the church he's poured out his radiant spirit. It's the church that has the preaching of Christ Jesus by which Christ is present. It's the church that has the means of grace, preaching and sacraments. We have what the world needs. In an inglorious world full of hopeless lives. We have the message of Jesus Christ, the living God among his people. And so we should act like it. In terms of valuing what matters most and in terms of reflecting this glory, we should be a reflection of the radiance of God in Christ, a place of humility, not of pride, a place of peace and not fear, a place of unity and not division, place of love by which all men will know we are Christ's disciples. We are to let the glory shine and primarily in the proclamation of the word because it's here in these pages as the church ministers this message that the glory of the Lord shines forth. So we see, first of all, Emmanuel's glorious presence but if we're wondering tonight, I don't know if my foul-mouthed coworker could ever come to church. I don't know if my indifferent relatives would really care about this glory. I don't know if my self-seeking neighbors would ever find this interesting. But then we ought to see secondly tonight, Emmanuel's worldwide people. Emmanuel's worldwide people. Zechariah goes out of his way here. The Lord has given him a great vision of the coming king who is a a universal worldwide king. In verses 3 through 5 there we saw that Jerusalem can't have walls because it's going to be ever-expanding, filled with people. In Zechariah chapter 8, the Lord says, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And then it says in Zechariah 8.23, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a picture, right? Every Jew has ten men grabbing hold of him, saying, Take us with you to church. And so Jerusalem becomes this pilgrim center of the universe. People are flooding in. God is going to glorify himself through saving people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. God's going to do a worldwide work. It seems to the people of Zechariah's day, we're such a puny people. We're such an insignificant people. We're just one little nation. We're a few people who've returned from captivity, a small band. And what do we amount to? And God says, oh, no, you're the center of my purpose, a universal purpose. And when the true Israel of God comes, who is Jesus Christ, he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Well, it's happening, isn't it, since Pentecost, that God is drawing in the nations. That missions presentation at our synod meeting some weeks ago, I thought was quite encouraging just to take a quick tour of the world and the different mission works going on, to be reminded the Lord is at work in so many places, drawing people to Christ. Maybe I mentioned before the DVD series my family purchased some time ago, this um, dispatches from the front, where the, the narrator, the host, he travels to all different places in the world. To Albania and Kosovo, to Ethiopia, to China, to India, to the Middle East. And he, he, he looks for, he visits a, a frontline pastor or missionary and follows him around for a bit. And he, he keeps strumming home the, the story that Christ is building his kingdom here, too. We used to watch those on Sunday nights when we got them. And I always found them so encouraging. Because you, you worship on Sundays, and maybe especially on Sunday evenings, you think we're a small people. Or as a preacher, you you try to study and pray and preach, and then you wonder, does it amount to anything? But those videos were encouraging, I know, to me to think, Christ has an expansive kingdom. And yet, you know what? It's not by sight, is it, that we can take hold of the vision. Because I imagine if I went to those places and didn't have that narrator painting it so beautifully for me, if I showed up at some of those churches and missionary works he visited, I might say, you know, 10 or 15 people. They're poor, they're persecuted. This isn't much, is it? But you see what that narrator was doing was he was bringing the word of God to bear upon it. And that's what we must do. We can't see it with the eyes of the flesh. We must see it by the eyes of faith. This is a glorious work our Lord is doing. It's expansive. Our hearts should soar and wonder. The church is not some small puny thing Christ is conquering the world. Christ shall have dominion. Nations will come. Many words of prophecy against the nations about judgment, but here God is prophesying salvation. And how serious is it? He's going to include them in his covenant people, he says. I want you to see that. That the Gentiles have the same standing before God as the Jews do. Because in verse 10, God says, I'm going coming, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And then in verse 11, we read, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. They shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Well, the first time God says, I'll dwell in your midst, he's, he's talking to, to the Jews of Zachariah's dates and encouraging them, I'm going to dwell in your midst. But then he says, I'm going to bring many nations. And then he says it again, having brought many nations, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And he's saying to his people that that there's going to be no distinction between the way I dwell in you, my Jewish people, and the way I dwell in the Gentiles. You're going to be one people. And in fact, he says the Gentiles are not just going to be joined to the Jews. They're going to be joined to the Lord. And he says they shall become my people, which is covenant language, right? I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus said, you know, that he had other sheep that are not of this fold. He must bring them also to be one shepherd, to be one flock. And so there is no difference in standing. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There's only one way of salvation. There's no plan A for Israel and plan B for the nations. There is one people, a covenant people, And the Gentiles will be part of that people. Christopher Wright writes, You, Zion, will become a multinational community of people from many nations. The identity and membership of Israel have thus been radically redrawn by the Lord himself. It is no longer Zion and the nations, but Zion inclusive of the nations. And if you think that's so easy to understand, you you have to read Ephesians 3 and find out what the Apostle Paul says, that this is the great mystery that was hidden in the ages past and is now revealed. He made known to me the mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. You see, the Jews couldn't grasp how this could be, that the nations would come and have equal standing in the covenant. And the Apostle Paul says, we now know how it is, that the glory has come down. Jesus Christ, by his blood, has reconciled the two and made them one people before the face of God. And so what glorious good news for us tonight who are, I assume, mainly Gentiles, maybe all Gentiles. We are all of the nations. We are all of pagan tribes. I mean, God didn't have to save any of us. He could have left our forefathers to be the war-hungry, ignorant, savages that they were. He didn't have to save the nations. He didn't have to bring us into his covenant. But here we are tonight as a people who have seen the light. Brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God dwelling in us. But if we grasp this wonder that, that God has gone universal with his salvation. To bring people, the elect of every tribe, tongue and nation. And to give them the same Glorious gift of his presence. If God has dwelt with us, dealt with us that way, then then we have to deal with other people that way. Our culture speaks a lot these days about racism, but its solution is as bad as the problem. And our world has misused a discussion of race and ethnicity for all kinds of impure goals, and it has failed to reckon with the fact that discrimination is. The sin of every heart. No matter what one's skin color. And it has failed to reckon with the reality that discrimination is not just about skin color or ethnicity, but discrimination. It's about all kinds of things. James chapter 2 says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man of filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and to the poor man you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts?" There's all kinds of discrimination, sinful discrimination. But you see, when whenever it occurs, whether it's a discrimination about educational level or about finances, or about skin color, about who your parents were, about how long you've been in the church, or whether you are a charter member, whatever it is, when we play this game of partiality in the church, then we're suggesting that the foundation of our standing before God is something we are or something we've done. When our real standing and our real honor is not that we've lifted ourselves up to the glory but the glory has come down and taken hold of us. So we ought to be finished with sinful pride. If we remember that we are one dark lump of filth till the glory descended upon us and gave us life. So we ought to be finished with sinful pride of exalting ourselves We may not boast even in our spiritual gifts and think that makes us better than someone. We have to remember 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And So the secret to dealing with racism or achieving world peace and all the things that our world keeps talking about is Jesus. And all efforts at human peace that exclude Christ are doomed to failure. But only if Christ is the rallying point, only if we have unity in him, only if we meet one another at the feet of the Lord Jesus, are we equipped to deal with sinful favoritism and to put pride to death and to pour out the love that's been shed abroad in our hearts. See, only when we know that our glory is not self-made, but is a gift from above, Can we learn to walk humbly with one another? God says, and I think it's actually Christ speaking in our text, the eternal Son of God, come as Savior, is saying that I will dwell in your midst. I will dwell in your midst. And that midst is a people gathered from all over the world, equally unworthy and unfit, But filled with the grace and the glory that's come down from heaven. So we've seen Emmanuel's Emmanuel's glorious presence, and then we've seen Emmanuel's worldwide people. But finally tonight, notice Emmanuel's distinct prescriptions. Distinct prescriptions. There's there's three commands that are found in chapter two. There's a summons to separation. A summons to singing and a summons to be silent. The summons to separation comes before our text. It's found in verse 6, and this is a word to the compromised. Verse 6, up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Verse 7, up, Zion, escape, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Well, things have changed persia's in control now but babylon is somewhat symbolic here of all the people who did not return to jerusalem when they could have you remember when when cyrus came to power the persian he he comes to power over babylon and he issues the edict allowing the jews to go back home to jerusalem and you remember it was only a small band that wanted to go home and we can assume that for many people, their lives were now too comfortable. They were too settled. And they said to themselves, you know, why, why should I give up my business and give up my house and give all this up to go home to a broken land, to a desolate place? No, I think I'll stay here. But our text is, is giving a warning, isn't it? And God is saying, if you have fallen in love with Babylon and you don't have a hunger for Jerusalem and for the glory of God, then beware Babylon's going to be destroyed. In the book of Revelation, right? It's a great warning. It's going to be destroyed. Babylon represents the world empire. And the glory of the Lord will last forever. So there's a summons to separate yourself. To lose your life if you might gain your life. In 2 Corinthians 6, we read, Do not be unequally yoked together. With unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As, I have, as God. as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul actually quotes from other texts in the Bible similar to our text in which God's people are called to be separate if they would enjoy the indwelling of God. That text from 2 Corinthians 6 about not being unequally yoked we, we use to encourage young people and young adults not to marry outside the Lord and it's certainly applicable to that. But it's not limited to that. God is saying in all of your life, be in the world, but be not of the world. We're not called to a physical, geographical separation today from the world. We are to live in the midst of the world, but the world is not to live in us. Our hearts are to be separate. Separate unto God. Take up your cross and follow me. Think pure thoughts, not worldly thoughts. Be not an idolater. Be separate. But then there's the summons to sing. The summons to sing in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Sing and rejoice. Celebrate what God has done. This is the the greatest thing the world has ever known. That the glory of the living God should come down upon a sinful earth. To reconcile it to himself and to fill it with the joy of his presence. God calls his people to rejoice in Zechariah's day, even though it doesn't seem so great at the present. They have lots of trials, they don't look very glorious. And God calls them to rejoice by faith. We sometimes think of joy as a spontaneous emotion but if our parents told us when we were young to take off the frown and put a smile on our face, that we may have learned that you can choose to be glad when we believe that God is able to do what he said he would do. God wants to be glorified in the joyful hearts of his people. So Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. One of the things that robs us of joy is anxiety. And so the apostle continues to write, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. It is by believing that the Lord is at hand, that he is present, he is here, and he is coming again, that we're able to sing and rejoice. God dwells among us, and his coming will set all things right. Emmanuel, God with us. But finally, there's a summons to silence. The last verse of the chapter. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused. From his holy habitation. John Calvin says that in this verse. Is the sealing of the whole prophecy. God seals his word. By that last verse. Because he proclaims that it's going to happen. That God has been aroused. And now he will go to action. Maybe it's like a bear that's been awakened. And now you better watch out. Or like a man who goes to war. And he's not turning back. God is has been roused from his holy habitation. John Calvin writes, It is, in short, the shout of triumph by which Zechariah exults over all the enemies of the church and shows they would rage in vain, as they could affect nothing, however clamorous they might be. He means, in short, that when God shall go forth to deliver his church, he will be terrible, so that all who had before furiously assailed his chosen people, shall be constrained to tremble. God says to all the wagging tongues, be silent. Psalm 73 describes those tongues. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Boisterous, arrogant Creatures proclaiming all they've done and all they will do and taking themselves the right to proclaim what is moral and what is true. It's an outrageous thing when our legislators redefine marriage and they say to the creator of heaven and earth who formed marriage, no, this is what marriage is. And God says to them, shut your mouths and stand back, because I am coming. I am coming. The Lord God is on the move. One commentator says, like schoolboys chatting around so confidently till the teacher walks in, and then silence. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, they take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, but God laughs. Because he set his hill on his holy mountain, and he said to him, Ask the nations for your inheritance, and you'll have them. And you, he says, will break them with a rod of iron. So be wise, O kings. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Glory of God. Is on the move. Let the world be silent. So to the compromising, the word is flee. Separate yourself to the world. To the hostile, the world is be silent. You have no idea who you're dealing with. And to the church, the world is the word is sing, sing and rejoice and be glad. The glory of God has come to dwell in your midst. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your sure and solid word. We thank you for the hope. We praise you for the glory of God revealed to us in your beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for a world of pride, that you would cause many hearts to bow down before you and acknowledge the futility of human boasting. Pray, Lord, that we, possessing this glad message, might be delighted to proclaim it in this world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, in all the places in our lives where we have compromised with Babylon, that you would awaken us, that we might turn and be separate as a people who know the presence of God and who long for the coming glory to dwell among us. Hear our prayer, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.